When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 4.6 billion. The earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural 250. revolution. 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang. Today's episode is an interview that my co-producer Mike Osborne recorded with Emma Maris. Emma is a freelance journalist, and she wrote a book called Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. She takes a really creative approach to how we think about nature and wilderness. Since the publication of her book in 2011, Emma has become a prominent figure in environmental circles. And just a heads up, Mike and Emma recorded this interview in a garden in downtown San Francisco. The garden is behind an apartment where the remnants of a burned building were converted into an urban garden. So in the interview, you'll hear some quiet city noise in the background, but I think it actually feels really appropriate because Emma speaks about appreciating nature in all settings, whether urban or in national parks. Also, her book, Rambunctious Garden, is coming out in paperback August 20th. So here's Emma Maris. My name's Emma Maris, and I'm a writer, sort of a journalist. I'm not sure what I am anymore. <laughs> um, Thinker. Yeah. Someone described me as a thought leader recently, which I thought was hilarious. But uh, environmental writer. I'm an environmental writer. And maybe you could describe where we're sitting right now. We are in a fantastic little pocket garden hidden behind an apartment building in San Francisco. And it is certifiably a rambunctious garden. It's a cool mix of stuff that's been planted, stuff in pots, stuff in beds, and stuff that just showed up and is growing out of cracks in these old foundations. So let's talk about rambunctious garden. The book came out 2009? 2011. And it hit. It resonated with people. And it's become something that's talked about a lot. Did you expect it? Well, sure. I expected it to be a bestseller. I'm actually disappointed. It, you know, it didn't become the next omnivore's dilemma. But um, I guess I was surprised at how how much it really resonated within the sort of community of conservation biologists and environmentalists. They're the people who have really responded well and with a lot of great conversation. I, it's it's hard for me to get any work done these days because of all of the conversations I am still having over over this topic. Um, great, fabulous, interesting conversations. Yeah, actually, that's sort of where I wanted to go next, is what kinds of conversations have you been having? Do you think people 
interpreted the book the way you intended for them to? And, you know, where does it get heated and interesting now that the book is out published and being talked about a lot? So uh, when I wrote the book, I didn't spend a lot of time. The book is mostly about how you do conservation if you're not looking backwards but forwards. So the first half of the book explains why looking backwards is no longer that useful and why it never really made that much sense in the first place. And then the second half of the book talks about some of these new strategies. So one thing that I didn't spend a lot of time in the book doing was talking about how some of the more familiar strategies are still a good idea, like let's have parks. And, you know, how sometimes um, non-native species are terrible and need to be removed in order for anybody to be happy. Um, because I just sort of assumed that we could all agree on those. But maybe I should have spent more time on that because some people interpreted me as thinking that we don't need parks, which is crazy. You know, um, I love parks. So I have spent a little bit of time trying to set the record straight on that and talking to people who think that I'm also willing to embrace any species, any place, any time, no restrictions. On the contrary, you know, when they get rats off some island or goats off an island in the Galapagos, I'm cheering just as loud as the next person. I love the book, and I read. I should, let me be upfront about that. I read it months ago, and I was poking around through it last night and trying to remember what did I like about this. One thing I love about it is your writing style. You're a fantastic writer, and there's also a great mood being set. I mean, even the title "Rambunctious Garden" has a has a kind of playfulness to it that I think is fun. It makes it very accessible. Um, do you think? that that's part of the reason it hit is because of the tone that was set? Um, or, or was it more the sort of, I mean, obviously it's a balance of intellectual value and playful writing, but I don't know. I mean, do you hear people talking more about the intellectual content or, or the style? Yeah, I think the reason that it resonated in the community was more that it just sort of took a bunch of strands, strands and tied them together in a little bow. So there was this conversation going on about invasive species. So I t it played into that. There was a conversation going on about assisted migration or moving species in advance of climate change. And I put that in there. And a there was a whole other group of people who were talking about these novel ecosystems. So I sort of brought these groups and these discussions together. And I think that's the value that people are finding in it. I think the fact that it was short and written in a sort of a not too dense manner, uh, I wanted it to be so that you could read it on a uh, transatlantic flight or a or cross-country flight, so you could read it start to finish on the flight. And I think that you can do that, and I think that's helpful <laughs> to get to getting the message out. The, the digestibility of it? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I sort of feel like I was in the right place at the right time with these ideas were bubbling around, and I managed to capture them all in one little box. Yeah. I mean, where... Th th this idea it has been out there a little bit of for a while. End of nature no such thing as untouched wilderness. The more you look at it, the more, oh, we've affected everything. And this is well expressed in the word Anthropocene, um, which is part of the reason we've gravitated to it. I think that it does leave us lost. The, the fact that, that this myth of pristine wilderness doesn't exist leaves us in a place where, well then, okay, why are we protecting anything? What value system is going to help guide us. Um, so so it, it's both true, but also frustrating if, if you have a green streak in your blood. Yeah, so absolutely, I agree with you. The, the two most questions that I get most often are, what do you mean invasive species are okay? What about X? And then they'll tell me about the species that they particularly hate. Python or something. Right, yeah. python or English ivy. Or, and then I usually Eucalyptus say, eucalyptus. <laughs> well, and I usually say, go ahead, you know, if it makes you happy, keep hating that species, it's fine. And certainly remove it from your own garden if you don't like it. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not telling you what to do with your own space. So, but the second most common question is this exact question. If 
this this sort of holy baseline of the past disappears, we, we, we are left feeling somewhat unmoored and adrift. And this is a real issue. And so much so that, in fact, some people who say, well, yes, this is all true, also believe that we should, sort of shouldn't say it out loud because it provides, um, it erodes the sort of moral case for environmentalism. And I reject that because I don't think you should found any uh, movement on us, uh, you know, sort of like keeping the truth from the people. It just doesn't <laughs> seem like a very su- successful strategy. Like there are some religions in the past that haven't done too yeah, well that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, people are already skeptical enough of climate change science and so on. If we're going to start deliberately, dece- you know, I mean, that's just crazy. So we have to be honest about what happens. We have to be honest about the way the world is and how much influence we've had and how much ability we have to put things back into them. So yeah, there are so many other reasons to want to protect nature, to protect the diversity and abundance of living things, to want to have heterogeneity in different places around the world. There are so many other reasons for that, other than it used to be that way, that I just, I don't think we need it. I think that we can we can do it on, on other things like the intrinsic value of other species or their right to exist, or if that doesn't move you, or if you have trouble with that, we can do it straight up on, we like it. We like nature, we like lots of wild things. We like lots of different species. And there's the, also the ecosystem services people who, who sort of say, oh, they, they filter our water and they, and they protect us from storms and they provide us with mushrooms and all those things are totally true. But I don't think we should put all our eggs in that basket because then if there's some little burrowing owl somewhere that does not provide us any economic benefits, then there's no reason to like not pave over his little burrows. So I don't go 100% with the ecosystem services guys, but there are just... A million other reasons. I agree with that, but at the same time, I think that the myth is powerful. And it, it, where I think it's really powerful and maybe not talked about enough is in the need for solitude mm-hmm. and the need to, to go somewhere where you feel like there's a sense of ownership. I'm standing somewhere no one's ever stood before. And when, when, when we lose that, I, I, I don't know, maybe something is being lost. So, first of all, not everyone has that kind of relationship with nature. And we've got to remember that that's a particularly uh, sort of special kind of cultural relationship with nature that many sort of rich white people in the West have. But that there are many other possible relationships with nature, including going out there in big family groups and having a huge picnic by the lake, and that that's also a totally valid way to relate to nature. So having said that, I do think that ability to be alone is something that we should try to preserve in this world. And, and, And saying that a certain place isn't pristine doesn't mean you can't go be alone in it. Now, as far as being the first person to ever stand anywhere, we may have to give up on that. We may. And and maybe that's okay because what kind of value is that anyway? That's a sort of a domineering, masterful, I want to be the first person to ever stand on this rock kind of thing. And maybe that's not a value that that's, is really all that important. I want to get it maybe what was personal about this. Uh, so a lot of it, I mean, you have children. I hear you sort of mention them in passing in a lot of interviews and you know when, when you speak where did you have kids when you were writing the book yeah well I was pregnant when I wrote most of the book I when I was out in Hawaii looking at novel ecosystems I was like wretchedly morning sick and trying not to puke by the side of the trail kind of thing so how much did that factor in well you know a lot um you know as it, I think it often does when you have kids so there's this sort of Here's a funny story. So there's this sort of old saw that, that your environmental concern, your concern for future generations expands as soon as you have children. So then I thought, well, presumably then it would expand further when you had grandchildren. 
So I asked my mother, do you care more about the planet and about the future of the planet now that you have grandchildren? And she said that actually, yes, she sort of did. She was actually more concerned about climate change and so on now that she could kind of envision her her granddaughter's uh, lifespan. And so then I went and I thought, well, this probably continues. So I went to my grandmother and I asked her, do you have more environmental concern now that you have great grandchildren? And she said, oh, environment, hell, like I'm, I'm concerned now about our ability to move to other planets. Like her, her sense of the future has now expanded so far that she's worried about colonizing other planets and, and like whether or not we'll be able to do that. So I think that your concern just kind of does expand out a little bit. But, but on a more immediate level, I'm really bummed out by the notion that children are being taught very early on that nature is, you know, their, their, their idea of what nature is is being restricted by their education. Not only their formal education at school, but by their education watching nature documentaries on TV and stuff like that, where they're being told that nature is this thing far away that's in big parks and has polar bears and elephants in it, and they are not being told that nature is this thing close up in their backyards and on the way to school and in empty lots and so on. And I think that really robs them of a lot of pleasure and beauty. Um, so with my own daughter, um, you know, she brings home bouquets that are half flowers and half weeds. I am not about to tell her which ones are weeds and teach her to hate them. So some of it was personal. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And and part of it was... In wanting to redefine nature, I mean. Yeah, and, 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 and part of it was not about my kids. It was about myself. You know, when I was... Uh, when I was growing up in Seattle, I spent a lot of time in sort of scruffy novel ecosystems that you know they wouldn't have been called that at the time, but time that was really important to me. And I and I was a big nature lover when I was little. I wrote this sort of sappy nature poetry in my journal and so on. But when I got a little older, when I got to be a teenager, and I got indoctrinated with this notion that you had to be in sort of a national park, you had to be in a wilderness area, you had to be on the Olympic Peninsula or something for it to count. Because that was more difficult, I didn't have the time, the money, the gas money to get out there. I just sort of stopped caring about nature for many years and just became totally urban focused and didn't look and didn't see and didn't uh, have that as a part of my life. I mean, somehow, some of this seems to me to be training your eye and training your heart to have an intuitive sense of this is a special place and and you don't exactly know what are the qualities of it that recognize it as such and I think the garden we're sitting in right now maybe not a bad example of that yeah absolutely this place is gorgeous and the fact that there's lots of um, skyscrapers visible that there's traffic noise so on does not diminish it in, in a weird way it almost makes it more special because it heightens the fact that we're in this kind of urban matrix and so that all of this plant life is so cool to have here so is that what environmentalism to you is about in some sense? Is having, is just having an awareness of place, a sense of place, a, d- a deeper questioning of what's around me and how it got there? No, because I think I love the sense of place and it gives a lot of pleasure to people, but I think hanging the whole environmental movement on it is a bad idea because some of these questions are just too big. I mean, you need to figure out energy policy and you can't do that by having a great sense of place, you know. So you need to have lots of different strands or you need to have really clear-eyed thinking about the big sort of macroeconomic issues and trade policy and all that kind of stuff. But I think you also have to have soul food in order to keep doing this. And in order to do that, it helps if you can actually be nourished by the nature around you and not just the nature that you see on TV that's far away. I guess the root of some of these questions is that environmentalism to me today looks on one hand like it has been marginalized as a sort of uh, special interest group and 
part of the reason essays like The Death of Environmentalism were so popular, and part of the reason your book is hitting, is that there is a sort of moving beyond the conversation in a healthy way. I just don't know what's being retained. And maybe uh, some of the, the, it's easy to deconstruct a lot of arguments, but I don't know what we're left with. And, and there is this sort of lingering sense of um, disorientation. Yeah, I think that's natural that you're disoriented. I'm disoriented too. I think we're all disoriented and we need to go through this all together, hand in hand. Um, but I think that... It's very inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that um, there is a lot left. You know, the, sort of the environmental virtues of compassion and for the planet, humility about our place on the planet, those can be retained in the Anthropocene. There is nothing... Just because we're aware about our pervasive influence on the planet does not mean that we are masters or, con- or in control in any sense. We are clearly not in control. So we, we, are, we should still be humble. We should still uh, be awed. We should still have those kinds of relationships. I, I, the only one that goes away, as far as I can tell, is a reverence for a static ideal. And whether that was ever helpful in the first place, I kind of doubt. I, I agree with that. Um, I think there is also another thread of environmentalism, though, is a celebration of minimalism. Yeah, and I, you know, I was just thinking about this this morning. I was reading some uh, an essay by Paul Wapner. Do you know him? He said, um, where is he? He wrote a book called Living Through the End of Nature, and he wrote this essay about humility in the climate age, where he basically argues that uh, the new environmentalism is dangerous because it says that we can have our cake and eat it too, that we can all develop and lead these kind of high consumption lifestyles while at the same time having environmental protection and that we'll just use technology to get there. Now, whether or not the technology will come online fast enough for that sort of utopian thing to be a reality is a separate question. But what upsets him about that is that that scenario no longer requires from each of us sacrifice and restraint. And he thinks that that's morally troubling. So I've been thinking Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, no, I don't, because I think that outcomes matter, outcomes for the planet, outcomes for other species. Um, it's more important that we have a good, thriving, flourishing Earth than it is that we all personally are morally improved by having to get there. In fact, I think an actually a real humble position is the one that says that environmentalism isn't about us and improving our moral character. It's actually about the other species. And so if the most efficient way to protect the other species is for us to all get technological and not have to have these kind of restraint things, if that's more efficient, that's what we should do. It shouldn't be about our moral journey. It should be about the outcomes for other species. Yeah, but surely you can sort of sympathize with a dis- general discomfort with technology. Uh, yeah, sure. And I think that, you know, we're all, we're all living in, a, in an era where technological change is very, really rapid and that can be very disorienting and it's hard to sort of sort out good change from bad change and you're not sure. And, and I share some of that nervousness. And, um, yeah, but I don't, I don't think rejecting technology because it's technology is, is helpful. I mean, if we're rethinking nature and putting ourselves back in it, you know, then, then sort of rejecting things because they're unnatural no longer makes as much it's no longer as coherent of a of a stance i think we should reject things because they make life worse not because they are a natural or they are a technology why did you get into journalism uh i don't know i wanted to be a writer when i was young young and um about yeah, I like to tell stories. I like to find out about stuff. Yeah. So I did fiction for a while, but in fiction you make it up, but I kind of prefer to find stuff out. The, the thing about journalism that's so 
amazing to me and never ceases to amaze me is that if you're curious about something, you can figure out who the world authority on that thing is, and then you can call them on the phone and, and say, hey, I'm curious about this thing, and they will talk to you and tell you about it. I mean, that I can't imagine a better job in the world. Do you remember the first time you discovered that lesson? Uh, when I first started at Nature, I remember one of my first news stories was about some sort of political controversy and the details of which totally escaped me, but I had to call a Nobel laureate on my first week on the job. And I was totally nervous and just, you know, sweating. And, and I called him and I said, oh, this is Emma Maris from Nature. And <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way home. I'll give you a call when I get home. And I realized that I could just talk to a Nobel Prize winner in this job. It blew me away. Who is out there that, not, not that you disagree with everything they say, but who do you have the most stimulating intellectual conversations with or conversations about, you know, a rambunctious garden with? Well, I have been making a real effort to talk sort of one-on-one with people who don't like my ideas um, because I think that that's important for both of us. Um, and, you know, also when you get across the table from somebody, you can't really stay that mad at them, you know. <laughs> Um, so it's, I think it brings the, the, the kind of discourse to a more kind of civilized level. Um, and those conversations have been really good because I always want to continually question my, my take on this. You know, what am, what am I missing? Like, what is it about these wilderness spaces that continually um, draws people back? Is there something that I'm not capturing with this new way of looking at them? Is there anybody... Well, I had, a, I had a great conversation recently with Michael Soule, who had been very critical of my ideas. We were in Denver at this conference, and we were both speaking, and then I, we had a drink together. And, um, and that was interesting, because when we kind of, we, I kind of cross-questioned him, like, you know, would you move the pica, if necessary, in order to save it from climate change, even though that would mean moving it out of its natural range and um, creating, I guess, a novel ecosystem? And he said, yes. So... What, what is really the point of our difference? It's so subtle. The only point that we came across that we were like super were divergent on was that if there's a non-native species hanging out and not threatening another species, I'm happy to let it hang out. And he still wants it out of there. But that's, I mean, the grand scheme of things, that difference is so minor. This gets back to conversations about, you know, rich white people. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, part of the difference between me and my critics is not on policy or pragmatics because a lot of what is going on in conservation is already sort of it's not like there's a lot of conservation projects that are trying to return entire huge ecosystems to a certain pre-human condition that's just not feasible and people aren't really even doing it right so one criticism that i think is a fair enough point is that i was sort of attacking a straw man by suggesting that that was the dominant paradigm but it is the dominant mental paradigm, right? So this new way of looking at things doesn't actually change the way we do a lot of conservation. It just changes whether we perceive our activities as being pathetic last-ditch attempts or joyous, wonderful gardening, happy, proactive uh, shaping of a greener future. So it's really a psychological shift. This is something I personally struggle with a lot because the term psychological shift is to me very telling because I get it intellectually on, on a lot of levels. Um, and then I, I go back and try and question my own value system. When I'm out camping, what is it, what is it about this experience? I actually think, I wrote, wrote not too long ago that when somebody self-identifies as an environmentalist, all they're really saying is they enjoy camping. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, I mean, there's so much truth to that. And it's not as if I am unaffected by, by the way I thought about nature for most of my adult life. I mean, when I go camping and I take pictures, I still frame shots that do not have the path or the fence in them. 
Mm. Although I have started this project of like trying to catch myself doing that and then afterwards framing another shot with the fence in it so I can at least sort of have a record of each. Um, so, you know, this That's is interesting, actually. So is there a, like, have you had an experience post book where it's like, oh, I'm seeing this play out and it, like there was a, aha, this is, this is the emotional payoff from this intellectual reframing. I was hiking in the Rockies last summer, and I don't think it was a designated wilderness area. It was probably just one of those sort of boulder open space areas, but it was, you know, out there in the nature and um, climbed to the top of the mountain. And when we got to the top of the mountain, there were a bunch of Tibetan prayer flags up in the trees at the very top of the mountain. And my, I think that I would have been pretty annoyed by this um, until recently. Like, come on, I just like hiked up this mountain, I'm all sweaty, and I want, like the sort of the payoff of getting to the top was supposed to be that I was further away from my day-to-day non-nature life. But then I get to the top and there's this sign of people, that people have been here. But I was able to kind of just relax and think it was cute that somebody had dragged these flags up there and that they were trying to create this little sacred space up there and that was cool they were interacting with the mountain and it wasn't harming the trees that it was on so no i think a lot of environmentalists or or people who enjoy camping uh have had that experience where they've climbed a mountain and then they see a road and it's like oh you could just drive up here and something is lost something is diminished there i mean that i think that's a very relatable kind of experience yeah and I think that if we sort of challenge ourselves to try to really enjoy ourselves anyway, right? Like to sort of say, okay, what is it about this experience that that I'm loving? Is it because I, my, my, I just use my physical body to move me up the mountain rather than using a car? Is it because on the way up I saw all these little cacti and all these different species of wildflower and because my daughter picked up 14 cones and refused to put them down? Like that's actually, I think, what we're really getting out of it. We think that it's because it's unspoiled, but it's really it's just that we're up close and intimate with it. We can still be intimate with nature. In fact, we can be more intimate with nature if we expand our definition of nature. Well, this has been fantastic. Emma Maris, thanks for sitting down and talking with us. No, thanks for showing me this fantastic garden. Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank our guru, Tom Hayden, as well as Maxine Luckett for all their behind-the-scenes work. Special thanks to Pam Matson, the Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. And a very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. We also want to thank KZSU Stanford 90.1, where most, but not all, of our interviews are recorded. You can find past episodes on our website, anthropocene.stanford.edu, where you can also submit a story idea of your own. Follow our conversation on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene, or like us on Facebook. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Leslie Chang. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Welcome to our new geologic age.